Welcome to I Think Therefore iPod, a podcast on all things Apple and beyond. June 2nd, 2006. Hi everybody and welcome to the show. I've got three things that I want to talk about today. First of all, I want to talk about Apple's quality control. Secondly, I'll be covering BitTorrent and BitTorrent clients on the Mac. And finally, I'd like to share a little tip regarding passwords. But first of all, let's start with the Apple news and rumors. So let's start with the news. Well, Apple and Nike have teamed up to launch the Apple plus Nike campaign where basically they are releasing a set of products, hardware and software, to integrate the iPod Nano into your workout experience. So basically what this partnership entails is a whole set of new products, the most noticeable of which they're calling the Nike Plus Sports Kit. And basically what this includes is a pair of shoes with two little sensors in the soles. And there's also a little receiver that plugs into the bottom of your iPod Nano. And what this does is it sends information from your shoes wirelessly to your iPod Nano. What all this means is that if you're going for a run with this new sports kit, it will basically give you information and feedback about your run as you're doing it through your iPod Nano. You can also use the new software that's been released to sync and track your workout information on your computer. It also allows you to do things like monitor your progress, plan your next workouts, and also purchase workout-related music on new Nike playlists on the iTunes Music Store. One cool new feature as well with the sports kit is that you can use the software to set what they call a power song on your iPod Nano, which basically would be a song that gives you extra motivation to work out or run. And when you need that extra boost of motivation or energy, You can press a button and your Nano will play your power song to give your workout an extra little boost. Now, to me, this partnership makes a lot of sense. Both Apple and Nike are leading brands in their field, and Apple's iPod Nano is ideal for working out because it's nice and small, but it's still fully featured. And at the same time, Nike currently produces what I would consider to be my favorite iPod Nano armband. So they've shown that they are more than capable of producing quality workout products in terms of integrating an mp3 player with your workout. Now it does seem to me that this sports kit is more targeted towards people who are serious about their workout programs because the receivers and the little devices that go in your shoe they don't just work with any model of shoe. So in order to get the whole experience you actually have to purchase a special separate pair of Nike shoes that will accommodate the little sensors that will pick up your run information and send it to your iPod Nano. So you have to be willing to spend the money if you want to enhance your workout in this way. So if you are serious about your workouts and your running, this partnership might be very, very interesting to you. And I would not be at all surprised to see a whole slew of new Apple and Nike products in the future. A lot of companies have been talking about taking on the iPod recently, and this comes both in the form of hardware, 
with the release of new MP3 players and in the form of software in attempts to take on the iTunes Music Store. Now, this is completely understandable. It's a competitive market and the iPod is the current dominant force in the market and a lot of companies want a slice of that iPod pie. Most notably, Microsoft has just paired up with MTV to release what they call Urge, which is basically a new music service which sells music online, kind of like the iTunes Music Store. Except that music from Urge will be sold in the Windows Media format, the WMV format, which is currently incompatible with iPods. So not only are they taking on the iPod by trying to compete with it in terms of the iTunes Music Store, they're also trying to basically shut out the iPod from the new market that they're trying to create. Now, I don't know if starting this kind of format war is smart on the part of Microsoft and MTV. I don't know how effective it'll be. Because if you exclude the iPod from the market that can purchase your music, basically you're excluding the majority of people who own MP3 players. And if that's the case, then there's very little incentive for people who currently own iPods to switch from the iTunes Music Store to this new Urge service. So until they can topple the dominance of the iPod as the chief hardware, I don't see them winning the software war anytime. So while we're on the topic of this hardware battle, one thing we've also seen recently is a number of new MP3 players hitting the market. Now new MP3 players entering the market is nothing new, but one thing I've noticed is a lot of the MP3 players that have been released recently are specifically targeted towards taking on the iPod. So there are products like the new iRiver Clicks or the SanDisk E200, which clearly borrowed design ideas from the iPod but try to make them better in their own way. In fact, SanDisk has launched a strange little campaign called I Don't, where they've launched a website called idont.com and they try to market their MP3 player by putting down the iPod and iPod users which I don't know if I approve of because it seems kind of childish to me and a little bit bitter. But anyway, the point I'm trying to drive at is that even though a lot of these new MP3 players are cheaper than the iPod, um, they often have more storage capacity than the iPod, and very often they're more fully featured in terms of including things like FM radios, video support, broader format support, and all of these other things that they use to market their MP3 players as superior alternatives to the iPod. Yet the iPod still seems to win at the end of the day. There are a lot of arguments as to why this might be the case. Many people cite things like the cool factor of the iPod, its ease of use, and its superior menus and navigation interface, which is all very true to an extent, but there's one thing that often gets overlooked, which for me is the one factor which sets the iPod apart from all other competition. And until someone comes up with a better alternative to this one thing, I will definitely, definitely be sticking with the iPod. And that one thing is the iPod's click wheel. Now, I don't know how many people realize what a wonderful innovation the click wheel is, because the point of the iPod is to store a large amount of media. And the thing is, if you're going to be navigating through gigabytes and gigabytes of music, photos, and now video, there's got to be an easy way of finding one particular track, 
or one particular video that you want to watch. Because there's nothing more frustrating than having, say, 15 gigabytes of music and having to go through about 15 to 20 menus in order to find one specific song. And what the click wheel allows you to do more than anything else is cycle through a large amount of data in a very small amount of time. And the click wheel is beautifully designed. It's so responsive and it works so intuitively because if you move your finger faster, you scroll through the songs much quicker. So I have yet to see any kind of navigational tool or interface that comes anywhere near the iPod's click wheel. And when you add this one factor to all of the other things that make the iPod wonderful, it still remains a no-brainer to me when it comes to purchasing an MP3 player. It's iPod or nothing. Now this next story is a little bit confusing, if not slightly disturbing. And I noticed it on dig.com, and I'm not sure whether it was a mistake or there's something else going on. But basically, it involves Dell's support site, which is support.dell.com. And what this site allows you to do is download drivers for your various Dell computers. And what you have to do is select your specific computer model, which then takes you to a different page where you select the operating system for your model, and then it takes you to another page where it lists all the available drivers that you can download. Now for one particular model, the Latitude X1, if you go to its page and you pull down the operating system menu, a choice is listed there which shouldn't be there. For the Latitude X1, you can select Apple Mac OS. Now this is very confusing because as you know, Apple does not license its operating system out to third parties. You're not allowed to run OS X on PC. It's currently illegal. And of course, Dell doesn't sell any computers that come with OS X or any Mac operating system for that matter. So it's very, very strange that this would be on the website. And at the same time, if you click on the Apple Mac OS link, it doesn't actually have any OS X drivers. All the drivers that are available are still Windows drivers. So I don't quite know what's going on here. And if anyone has any theories or ideas, I would love to hear about it. Now, of course, the biggest theory that would be generated by such a piece of news is the notion that Apple is now ready to license out OS X to PCs. I think this would be a disaster if they were to do this because part of what makes Macs run so beautifully is the kind of harmony that exists between hardware and software. And because Apple builds the computers and writes the software, they can optimize it for tip-top performance. And let's admit it, let's face it, Mac OS X is a little bit of a resource hog. Not anywhere near as much as Windows Vista will be, but the optimization that you do get with Apple-built computers does help with the running of the operating system. And I don't know how good an idea it would be to license out the operating system to third-party producers such as Dell. Now, there's no indication that this is ever going to happen. It seems like something Steve Jobs would never, ever allow to happen. But this website just confuses me, to be honest. Now this last news story is awesome and it's one of my personal favorites. If you visited Apple's website in the last month or two, you will have noticed that when they opened their Fifth Avenue flagship store 
they included a 24-hour time lapse. And basically what this was, was a set of videos that showed you the crowd outside the Apple store for the first 24 hours uh, after it was opened. Now, if you go to the 5 a.m. hour, you'll notice something very interesting. This one guy stood in front of the time-lapse camera and held up a bunch of signs, which he then used to propose to his girlfriend. And I thought this was absolutely awesome. And the couple has spoken for the first time about this proposal. Now, basically what the guy did was he went in front of the Apple store and he stood in front of the time-lapse camera and held up a series of signs for about 15 minutes each just to ensure that each sign would get a good number of frames. <laughs> so basically, this guy stood outside the Apple store at 5 a.m. for an hour doing this. And then when he was finished, he went back to his apartment and he lit a trail of candles leading to his Power Mac G5. I love this. And then he got his girlfriend to go to his apartment, follow the trail of candles to the Power Mac G5, and watch the video. And basically, they've spoken about it on Macworld for the first time, and this is just one of the best stories I've ever heard. So I'm going to share a couple of the quotes from the interview with you guys. First of all, the guy, his name was James, said, I proposed to her with candlelights leading to my Mac in my apartment. I was on bended knee beside her, ring in my hand. There were tears, there was laughter, there was my G5. It was awesome. And she said, I quote, I was expecting the proposal to be incredibly romantic, just knowing his style. I should have suspected it would involve a Mac, since I know that is his second love. On May 22nd at 11.30pm, he set up the apartment with a romantic trail of candles leading up to his Power Mac G5, where he had me watch the video online for the first time. Now the story ends happily. She did say yes, so now they're engaged to be married. And I guess this is just a story that can make all of us Mac users sit back and smile. Because that's got to be one of the most unorthodox ways of proposing that's ever been done. Having your girlfriend follow Trail of Candles to a Mac and watch a video on Apple.com. That's brilliant. I love this story so much. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Now, I do realize there was some strange background noise in that last section. That was, unfortunately, my eight-year-old brother making noise. But anyways, let's move on to a couple of rumors. I've got two for you today. The first one is with regards to gaming. And apparently, Mike Lampell, an Apple hiring manager, has hired a team of programmers experienced in C and C++. But apparently, when they were hiring these people, they were looking specifically for programmers with gaming experience. So this gives rise to a number of theories. Some are questioning whether or not Apple's working on some kind of big secret gaming project, which would be pretty cool, or the more generally accepted consensus on this issue is that Apple is working on a new set of games or game compatibility and functionality on the next generation iPod. Now. This, I suppose, is a good thing because the games on the iPod right now are really just there as filler. No one really plays them very seriously, except past the time maybe. But I don't know whether or not 
adding gaming functionality on the iPod a good thing. But of course, all of this is just speculation right now. But do keep your eye out in the future for a potential Apple gaming project to be released. Now, rumors and speculation about an Apple-branded phone are still going pretty strong. And I talked about this on my last podcast. But it's just gotten me thinking, if Apple were to release a cell phone or a cell phone iPod hybrid, what kind of product would this be? Because Apple traditionally is very, very good with the end user experience. And to be honest, with cell phones on the market right now, I'm not really at all happy with the end user experience because I own a couple of cell phones right now and all of them have really ugly and cumbersome interfaces. And I've yet to see a cell phone that has a particularly useful or user-friendly interface. Basically what I mean is, on cell phones nowadays, 95% of the menus I will never ever touch in my lifetime. Now, what I would really like to see is just a simple, good quality cell phone that does the basics really well without having all these extra useless functions. Now, there are people who do like the expanded cell phone functionality, but I, for one, prefer just a simple phone without the video, camera, browser, and all this other integrated stuff that I will never touch or use. And of course, what Apple did with the iPod was they really simplified the MP3 player experience. They took away the FM radio tuner and they just installed an easy to use, simple interface that just made the whole experience much more enjoyable. And if they were to release a cell phone, I would be curious to see whether they would go the route of the extremely high tech with the large number of integrated functions or with the simple basics like they did so wonderfully with the iPod. And I, for one, would prefer the latter. So that'll do it for the news and rumors section this week. If you have any feedback about this section or the podcast in general, do send me an email at ithinkthereforeipodcast at gmail.com. This ain't the first time I caught you out again You spend all your time in a little cubicle Okay, before we move on, you may have noticed that I have put a piece of music between the news and rumors section and the main section of the podcast. Thanks to listener Tanya for that idea. I think it was a really good idea, and I really like it, but I haven't decided whether to put a different track on every show or to pick a track and stick with it. Now, you might have recognized that last clip. It was featured on one of Apple's most recent ads for the iPod Nano, and it's a clip from the song Cubicle by the band Rhinoceros. Okay, let's move on. Now, the first thing I want to talk about today is Apple's quality control. Because there seems to be a general perception that Apple's quality control is going down, especially with the new Intel Macs. And indeed, there have been a number of bugs and problems associated with the transition. The problems have primarily been reported in the notebook computers, especially the MacBook Pro. And indeed, most of the other reviews surrounding the other Intel Macs, particularly the iMac, have been almost all positive. But the problems with the MacBook Pro and to some extent the MacBook that have been reported range from heat to strange noises to the machines completely breaking down. And indeed, I actually have a story with regards to this. My dad recently got a MacBook Pro, 
and it also recently died. Now, I did get a chance to review it, and I have written about it on my site, and indeed, it was incredibly hot. The back of the MacBook Pro was too hot to actually touch, and it did have strange little sounds that came out of it when you plugged in the MagSafe power connector. But in terms of performance, it performed brilliantly, but the thing is, recently, it simply stopped working. First of all, it would not wake up from sleep, and it would sometimes restart itself. And after my dad completely wiped the hard drive and tried to reinstall the operating system, it died halfway through that installation process with the second installation disk stuck inside. Um, so my dad just left it and let it cool down for a couple of days. And at one point, it started up only to shut itself down again and restart itself again and again and again. So this particular MacBook Pro has been sent in for repairs or replacement, but the funny thing is, well, it's not really funny, but the thing is that my dad's colleague also purchased a MacBook Pro at the same time, and the exact same thing happened to it. Now, he's been a Mac user for almost 20 years, and this is the first time he's had a Mac die on him. And indeed, this is actually the first time I've ever seen a Mac completely break down, which is kind of distressing, but it does lead to the question of what's going on with Apple's quality control, because we have seen reports on the internet about little problems, such as Apple failing to apply the thermal grease correctly in the MacBook Pros. So what exactly is going on here? Is Apple starting to turn into just another PC company with things like the release of Bootcamp and the transition to Intel? Well, these are scary thoughts that people like myself don't even want to contemplate. But let's talk through some of these issues. Now, first of all, I'm not surprised that most of the problems have been confined to the notebooks, and especially the MacBook Pros. Because if you remember with the PowerBooks, Apple tried for a very long time to get a G5 chip into a notebook. But they just couldn't because the performance per watt ratio just wasn't good enough. And so if they were to put a G5 chip into a notebook, that notebook would get unbelievably hot. Now, what the Intel Core Duo chips offered was a much better performance per watt ratio. And so they really allowed this much power to be stuffed inside a MacBook Pro, inside a PowerBook-sized computer. And indeed, if you do put the MacBook Pro next to a PowerBook and run them side by side, the MacBook Pro wins on everything by far, except on non-universal applications that have to be run through Rosetta. But nevertheless, Apple was still cramming a huge amount of power into a small space, and so it's not surprising that the MacBook Pro might be a machine that's on the brink and being pushed to the absolute max. And of course, one can attest to this by looking at little things, such as how Apple was actually unable to put the 8-speed SuperDrive in the MacBook Pro, the 8-speed SuperDrive which you can get in the PowerBook and the iBook G4. So if you have a machine that is being pushed that hard, it's perhaps not surprising that it's overheating or being plagued by problems. And it does seem to be an issue like that, because there doesn't seem to be a problem with the hardware, 
the processor seems to work fine with the operating system because if you look at the larger systems, particularly the iMac, there aren't any such problems. And I would guess that that's because the iMac is so much bigger. And so it allows for better ventilation and better cooling systems. Because remember, the iMac does run using the Intel Core Duo chip, so it is technically running on a laptop chip. So the hardware in the iMac and the hardware in the MacBook Pro are very, very similar and essentially the same. And the fact that there aren't problems with the iMac, yet there are so many problems with the MacBook Pro, suggests to me that these apparent quality control issues have something to do with Apple trying to stuff so much power into such a small space. So who do we blame for these quality control issues? Do we blame the transition to Intel? Well, this definitely has something to do with it, but as I pointed out before, the iMac and the Mac Mini seem to run on the Intel chips without any such problems. So I wouldn't think it was actually a problem with the hardware itself. Some people point to a change in strategy, and a lot of people are speculating as to whether or not Apple is trying to gain more market share and more money basically by becoming more of a PC company and evidence such as boot camp seem to point in this direction. But I don't know if one can argue that Apple is actually trying to adopt a new strategy or change its ways in any way shape or form. Because if you remember back in the day with the PowerBook, basically what Apple was trying to do was boost it up to G5 levels of performance. Um, but they simply weren't able to do that. And now, with the MacBook Pros, they've basically put G5 or better performance in a notebook, which is, of course, what they wanted to do in the first place. And suggestions that Apple is doing something ludicrous, like thinking of switching to Windows, have basically been struck down by the recent, hey, I'm a PC, I'm a Mac ads that we've seen all over Apple's home homepage that basically highlight the points that make the Mac so much better than the PC. And so it would be extremely hypocritical of Apple to turn around and say that they're adopting a new strategy that's going to make them more like a company like Dell or, heaven forbid, Microsoft. So no, I wouldn't blame the quality control issues to a shift in strategy or any strange theories like that. Instead, I think we just have to be very aware that Apple is in a significant period of transition. And there is a general rule with Apple products or technology products in general that it's safer not to buy the first generation of new products, especially if big changes or innovations have been made. And I don't see why that should be any different with Apple products. First of all, if you remember back when Apple made the shift to the PowerPC chips, there were the same kind of chip issues as we've seen with Rosetta and the new Intel chips. So that is definitely nothing to be worried about. And at the same time, the quality control issues have to allow themselves to be sorted out. The first generations of these new Intel computers have come out, and now Apple has a chance to look back on their products and improve upon them. If you look back to a lot of Apple's innovations, the first iPods, the first Apple laptops, they've changed so much and improved so much, even with incremental upgrades. I, for example, have the latest and final 
increment of the iBook G4. And I definitely think it's the best iBook that's ever been made. And I'm actually glad to an extent that the iBook line died with the model that I own because it is by far the best Mac I have ever, ever used and owned myself. So the point I'm actually trying to drive at is basically don't be entirely surprised with these quality control issues. Now, of course, Apple has to address them, but it is a big period of transition, and we can't perhaps expect Apple to get everything perfectly right on the first attempt. They're not perfect, no matter how perfect they might seem. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if the next couple of generations of the new Intel computers are absolutely stunning and stellar. So the next thing I want to talk about was kind of prompted by a recent piece of news. Now recently, the PirateBay.org, which is a very, very popular and large BitTorrent tracker, got its servers seized by police in Sweden, who basically were accusing it of infringing upon copyright law. Now the thing is, in Sweden, what the Pirate Bay was doing was not illegal. And it seemed that it was the work of the American media companies, specifically the MPAA and the RIAA, who had influenced Swedish authorities to go and go after the Pirate Bay. Now, the website is back up again today, and as a consequence of all of this, two websites, Sony's Music Store in the UK and Warner Music's online sites got hacked. And basically all I'm going to say is that the hacking of these sites and the shutting down of the Pirate Bay were not coincidental events. And the MPAA actually released a press release declaring victory over the Pirate Bay. But of course, the site is back up today. Now, what I'm not doing in this segment is trying to promote piracy in any way, shape, or form. Instead, what this story just prompted me to do was to talk about BitTorrent on the Mac because there are a number of legitimate uses of BitTorrent. And what sites like the Pirate Bay do is they offer BitTorrent tracking services. So what is BitTorrent, first of all? For those of you that might not be familiar with the technology, basically BitTorrent is a technology that allows you to download very large files in a very efficient way. So unlike the traditional method where there's one host server that hosts the files and you connect to that server and then download the file, the way BitTorrent works is you have one host file, so one main file, and then a number of seeds and peers, which are the people downloading off of it. But when you're downloading off BitTorrent, you download little pieces of that file at a time. But while you're downloading, you're also uploading those files and sharing them via your own computer. And so what happens with BitTorrent is if you have a large number of people downloading off of a host file, then each of those people downloads little bits of that file, and then they download and share the other parts of the file with each other. And what all of this does basically is it makes downloading very large files much, much faster than it would be if you were, say, downloading just off a single host. Because as you are downloading the file, you're also contributing to making the file download faster online by sharing the bits of the file as you're doing it. So what you'll find on BitTorrent is when you download a file, your download speed will get faster and faster and faster as you're downloading. Because the more people that download, 
the more they contribute and the faster the overall sharing becomes. And the legitimate uses are endless because BitTorrent is really, really useful for sharing really large files. So there are a number of popular internet TV shows or podcasts, for example, that release high definition shows, which are absolutely huge files. And so a lot of shows such as This Week in Tech use BitTorrent to share their files. And on top of that, there are a number of software developers who release large updates via BitTorrent as well to speed up the downloads. But of course, a lot of people use BitTorrent to pirate movies, software, and games, and music as well. Because, well, it's obvious, if you have technology like this, it's going to be abused. I have to add the customary disclaimer, of course, don't steal copyrighted material. But BitTorrent itself is not something that's illegal. The technology itself is very, very useful and pretty cool. So what you need to use BitTorrent is basically a BitTorrent client, a piece of software that acts almost like a peer-to-peer -peer application, except it doesn't work in the same way it uses BitTorrent. So I'm going to talk about a couple of these, but they all work in the, generally the same way. Basically what you have to do is find the host file, and you have to download a file which is called a torrent. And what BitTorrent clients do is they then read these torrents and handle the download and upload speeds. So what a website like the Pirate Bay does is it's a BitTorrent tracker. And so it's a website on which you can find various torrent files. So they don't actually host any files themselves. They just point you towards the torrents and the host files that you will be downloading. So there are basically three BitTorrent clients that are the popular ones on the Macintosh. These are the official client, BitTorrent, Azurius, and TomatoTorrent, and I'm going to talk about these three. First of all, there's the official client, which is just called BitTorrent. And to be honest, I would avoid this BitTorrent client like the plague. It doesn't have a very good interface, and transfer times are usually really, really slow. You hardly ever get a good transfer speed. And finally, it crashes a lot, so I would avoid the official client if you can. Secondly, there's Azurius, which is a Java-based BitTorrent client, and I think this is by far the best BitTorrent client on the Mac. First of all, it has very, very fast transfer speeds, the fastest among any client I've ever seen. So you'll get the fastest transfer speeds and the quickest transfer times if you use Azurius. And at the same time, it also allows you to set three different levels in the interface, depending on your level of expertise. Now, I basically keep it at the beginner setting all the time because I only want to use Azurius to download and manage my torrents. So this basically keeps the interface nice and simple. But if you do want to tweak some of the advanced settings, you can enable them just by changing the level of expertise. So this is generally considered to be the best BitTorrent client on the Mac. But another one that I like is TomatoTorrent. Now, TomatoTorrent is different from Azurius in a number of ways. It does basically the same thing in that it handles your torrents and it downloads them for you. But first of all, TomatoTorrent has the most Mac-like interface. It's got an aqua look and feel, and it feels just like a Macintosh application. So it's the nicest and most pleasant to use. Now the thing with TomatoTorrent is you won't get very, very fast transfer times. You'll get much faster transfer times than the official BitTorrent client, but you won't get the kinds of speed that you see on Azurius.
But at the same time, Tomato Torrent uses much less of your CPU and much less of your RAM when compared to Azurius. So basically, Azurius is much more of a system resource hog than Tomato Torrent. And so if you run Tomato Torrent in the background, you'll notice a much smaller dip in performance in your system than if you were using Azurius. Now, if you use Azurius, of course, you get the really fast transfer times, but you can notice very, very large drops in performance in your applications. So I like to keep a copy of both Azurius and Tomato Torrent on my computer because then I can choose which one to use depending on whether or not I want a very fast download or if I want to download things in the background without really affecting my overall system performance. So if you do download very large files occasionally and you haven't tried BitTorrent, it definitely might be worth taking a look. And of course, here comes the obligatory disclaimer. Don't steal copyrighted material. Use BitTorrent, enjoy it, but don't abuse it. And finally on today's show, I want to share with you one of my favorite tips for the Macintosh. And this has to do with passwords. Nowadays, most of us have lots of memberships, accounts, and passwords to remember. And it can be pretty overwhelming. And most of us are faced with a dilemma. On the one hand, since a lot of our usernames and passwords are very important, it's crucial that we keep them safe and secure. After all, you don't want just any stranger to be able to figure out the password and log in to your online bank account, for example. But at the same time, you don't want to keep your passwords so secure that you forget them. And a lot of the solutions that people use to this problem aren't that great. Some people email their usernames and passwords to themselves, some people write them down on pieces of paper, and some people keep them on a single document. And none of these does a particularly good job of keeping passwords both secure and accessible. So this is my favorite solution of all time, and it's one of the reasons why I love Mac so much, because it's so easy to do. Basically what I do is I create an encrypted disk image. So I use a DMG file, which Mac users are basically all familiar with. And this DMG file, once created, is encrypted with a password. So in order to mount the disk, you have to enter a password. And once the disk is mounted, what I do is I create a text file, put all my accounts and passwords in it, and then I put that in the mounted disk, I dismount the drive, and anytime I want to access it, I have to enter that one password. So it's like a virtual storage disk that no one can access unless they have the password to it. Pretty cool, eh? This is how you do it. First of all, go to Utilities in your Applications folder and open Disk Utility. Once Disk Utility is open, click on New Disk Image and you're presented with a number of options. First of all, you have to choose the size of your virtual disk, and this will basically allocate that amount of space on your hard drive. If you're just keeping passwords, you don't need a very big size. The smallest default size is 2.5 megabytes, and that will do just fine. If you want to customize it and make it even smaller or a bit bigger, go ahead. Once you've picked the size of your disk, then make it an encrypted disk image. So in the drop-down menu under the sizes, select Encrypted Read-Write Disk Image. And once you do this, it'll ask you to set a password. So set one password and remember this password, because this is the crucial one. After you've made the disk image, then create a text file. 
TextEdit works fine, but any document will do. And in this text file, write down all of your usernames and your passwords and save it. Once that's done, double click your disk image and it'll ask you for a password. Enter the password that you earlier set and it'll mount the disk image. Once the disk image is mounted, drag your text file with all your account names and passwords in it into the disk image and then dismount it. After this, delete the original text file and you will have a copy that exists only in the encrypted disk image. So once all this is done, basically you have a password protected file with all of your passwords in it. If you need to edit it, just mount the disk image, enter the password and go for it. And what you now have is a safe but accessible way of getting to all of your usernames and passwords. And this is one of my favorite solutions of all time. Of course, you can use the encrypted disk image to protect any documents or files that you might want to protect. And it's all exactly the same process. Open disk utility, create a new disk image, set the size of the disk image, make it an encrypted read-write disk image, set the password, and poof, you're done. This is one of my favorite tips and tricks of all time, and if you found it useful, do send me an email at ithinkthereforeipodcast at gmail.com or visit my site at ithinkthereforeipod.blogspot.com. Well, that'll do it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, if you have any feedback or comments, feel free to email me anytime at ithinkthereforeipodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.